As we begin reading in Genesis chapter 13, it says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him, to the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Years ago, Lisa and I were fairly newly married, and we were attending a church in Puyallup, Washington. And it was a church that I had come to know the Lord in, and uh, the company that I worked for at the time was a glass shop that, that made those uh, large glass buildings like you see in the cities. And the owners of the company decided to move the company from Tacoma, Washington, down to, uh, I believe it was Salem in Oregon. We didn't really want to move there, and so we decided that I would just find a new job. Well, I did find a new job. It was back up closer to Seattle, which was about 45 minutes or so north of the church that we were attending. But we loved our church, and we didn't want to leave our church. And so we decided to just try to commute. Well, I think Wednesday nights were out right off the bat, because by the time I got off work and got home, there was not enough time to be able to make it to the church in time for the Wednesday evening Bible study. And so that was out. But Sunday mornings, we were still committed to that. But you get up and get rolling a little bit late on a Sunday morning when you're that far from church, and it's just easier sometimes to say, oh, never mind, we'll catch it next week. And before you know it, we were just uh, in the habit of not going. And we started to kind of backslide, slip away from the Lord in our relationship with Him a little bit. I, you know, my focus just wasn't what it used to be because I didn't have the constant encouragement of people. You know, it's not for no reason that God tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. And that's exactly where we were. We were in the habit of forsaking the assembly of, of not going to church. And, you know, we went along like that for a little while. And then finally we just said, you know what, this isn't right. We need to get back in church. And so we found a good church around us and got back involved there. And then that kind of resharpened our focus again. And pretty soon we could see God working in our lives again and steering the direction that He had for us. And you know, that's exactly 
what Abraham is going through at this time. Abraham had come out of Ur of the Chaldees. He'd taken a huge step of faith to, to leave and to go out into this land that God was going to show him and give to him as, as the promised land. And when they got through the promised land and over toward the Negev, they experienced that famine that we learned about last week. And so Abram goes down into Egypt. When he did go down into Egypt, there were some things in his life that definitely were outside the will of God, like the the jeopardy that he put his wife Sarai in with the lying to the Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt about who his wife was. So what we see when we look at Abram's life as he goes down into Egypt is we see somebody that has been walking in faith, but he's, he's slipping at this at this time. He, he seems to be heading backwards in his relationship with God and in his, in his faith. You know, back in the Promised Land, we see that he had built an altar. And he called upon the name of the Lord at that altar. You know, one of the things that we do not read about when his time in Egypt is we don't read about him building any altars while he's down in Egypt. We don't read about him calling upon the name of the Lord while he's down in Egypt. But when he comes back up out of there, what does he do? He returns back to the altar and he worships God. When he goes on to Bethel, which the word Bethel means the house of God, he's going to build another altar and continue to call upon the name of the Lord. And so what we're seeing here is God's deliverance of Abram. Now I know that we're going to focus on quite a few things in Abram's life as he comes back up out of Egypt and back into the promised land. And, and rightly so, there's some things to focus on. But if you look at the big picture of what's going on, it's, it's really God's work. It's God delivering Abram up out of Egypt. It's God that rescued Sarai from Pharaoh's house. It's God that was bringing him back to the promised land. And when we look at the beginning of chapter 13, the focus really is on the fact that Abram is coming back out of Egypt, back into the promised land. And it's also going to focus on the wealth that he's bringing with him. And so God, even though Abram was slipping in his faith down in that time, God is still holding faithful to His promise. He's still delivering Abram. And He's still blessing those who bless Him and cursing those who curse Him. God is not wavering in His deliverance and His faithfulness to Abram. Well, as we look at it here this morning, that's what we want to consider is is when God delivers. You know, the Bible tells us it's the same with us, that all the good things that we do in our life, when we're strong in our life, it's a work of God in our life. It's Him delivering us. The Apostle Paul would tell the Philippians that it is God that works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So he gives us both the desire to do the good things and the ability to do the good things in our life. When God delivers, we can see three results of God's grace in the life of Abraham. And they're the same three results that we find in our lives when we experience God's deliverance in our life. They're the same works of grace that Lisa and I saw working in our hearts when we got back serious in our relationship with God and got back into church and and renewed and sharpened our focus on the Lord back in that time of deliverance in our life. Well, let's consider these three results here this morning. The first one is we notice that God brings him back to the basics. As we said, you didn't find any altars mentioned in Egypt. You didn't find any calling upon the name of the Lord mentioned in Egypt. But chapter 13 is hemmed in with these concepts. It talks very early in chapter 13 about Abram going back to the altar that he built going back and calling upon the name of the Lord again. And chapter 13 ends with him building another altar when he gets to Bethel. 
And so God is really bringing him back to the basics of what? Back to the basics of worship and of prayer. And you know, those, those basics are necessary. Those basic functions, the, the foundational elements of our faith. You know, when God does a work in our life, He strengthens those basic elements. He brings us back to those experiences in our life. He brings us back into the fellowship of the church and, and strengthens us through the encouragement of, of fellow believers and uses us to strengthen others. He brings us back into God's Word, learning about it and meditating on it and thinking through those things. He brings us back into prayer and close communion with our Heavenly Father. You know, it's, it's like that in so many areas we can see it illustrated. I think back to when I was a kid one time we were out at the lake and I went to chase a beach ball that had kind of blown off the shore out into the lake a little bit and I went out swimming after this beach ball and it was a little too big to get my arm around so every time I tried to grab it it would roll a little farther from me and finally I'm getting tired and I'm getting scared because I'm, I'm feeling like I'm going to drown out there or something and I, I look back and my dad's at the shore watching keeping an eye on me here, and I, I'm getting a little frustrated because I'm thinking, why aren't you bringing the boat? <laughs> and so I finally, at some point, I kind of get a good breath of air, and I, and I shout out, and I, I bring the boat, and, and my dad yells back at me, roll over on your back. <laughs> and I thought, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, how many times have I learned that? We've gone, gone all the way through life-saving and survival techniques and swimming lessons. And, and one of the most basic things is when you get tired, you roll over on your back and you get a little rest. And I rolled over on my back and took a breath and relaxed for a moment. And then I swam back to the shore, jumped in the boat, and went out and got the, the beach ball. But, but it just reminded me of something simple. Back to the basics of what you've learned about swimming. Use that. And, and so in that time of emergency or panic, I... Went back to the basics, and, and it worked very well for me. You know, I remember seeing an interview, I think it was years ago, with Tom Brady. And he was talking about a slump that he'd gotten in as a professional football player and quarterback, and arguably the best quarterback in the, in the history of the game, uh, much as I hate to say it. <laughs> but he had gotten in this slump, and he w- was trying to work his way through it, trying to figure it out, and and finally he called an old coach of his. I think it was maybe his college coach, a old college quarterback coach from those days that he spent there. And, and he said, you know, I'm really struggling in my game. I need to – would you help me in this? And and so I think they watched some tape and maybe maybe watched Tom do a little bit of throwing and that kind of thing. And, and, and they told him, you know, you just need to – you just need to let a little air out of that thing. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. He, he actually, it was something with his form. I don't remember specifically what it was, but it was something that was just in the basic form of throwing the ball, I believe it was. He said, you know what? This is what you're doing wrong. And Tom just kind of went back to the basics and worked on the fundamentals of the, of throwing and it pulled him out of it. And, you know, how many MVPs have we seen from him since that time? I don't know. But, you know what, that's the thing. A lot of times we get maybe distracted, sidetracked, forgetful, whatever it is. We need to come back to the basics. It's the fundamentals of of the things that we're involved in that is often the thing that will bring us back to the solid game, the solid life that we need to be living. That's what God does with Abram. 
That's what He does with us. He brings us back to that place of prayer, back to that place of being in God's Word, back to that place of communion with the other believers and being strengthened. And He brings us back to the basics. Well, not only do we see God's grace result in bringing us back to the basics, we also see God's grace in a renewed concern for relationships. Now think about where Abram's been here. He just came back out of Egypt. What did he do while he was in Egypt? He put his wife in jeopardy to save his own skin. He told her, say you're my sister so they don't kill me to have you as their wife and by getting rid of their husband, your husband. And so he was willing to put his own wife, the person closest, dearest to him, at risk. But what do we see in chapter 13? Chapter 13, I think we see a changed Abraham, a, a renewed Abraham, because now he's, he's, he's focused on those relationships. Rather than putting like Lot, for example, at risk, rather than showing a lack of concern for Lot, he shows concern for Lot by giving him first choice of the land. They've come back up out of the land and God is focused on the wealth that Abraham is accumulating. And Lot is accumulating too because Lot is kind of hanging on the shirt tails of Abraham. He's coming with Abram. And so Lot's one of those people that, that blesses Abraham or is relating to Abraham well. And so he's getting blessed with the promised blessings that's coming from God. And so even though Abram slipped in his faith going down into Egypt, God continues to bless him there. And Abram comes out of Egypt and Lot comes out of Egypt with more than they went into Egypt with. He's accumulated a lot of wealth. It reminds you of the future, doesn't it? Remember when Israel as a family goes down into Egypt and they will be delivered as a nation 400 years later. They will come out of Egypt with great wealth as the people will be basically paying them to leave. And so this also is pointing forward to the future deliverances by God also. And then, of course, is pointing toward the deliverance, the ultimate deliverance in Jesus Christ, because he will come up out of Egypt to be the Redeemer and the Savior of Israel. But as he comes back up out of there, he's got all this wealth, and so they've accumulated too much to be able to dwell together. Their herds are too big. Some frustrations are building, and and Abram says, you know what, Lot, I don't want to fight with you. We're, we're brothers. We're kinsmen. We're family. If we're too big to be able to live together in this way, then let's put a little distance between us for our herd's sake and, and for family's sake. But Abram's following a principle here. The principle is told to us also in the New Testament in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know what? That's how we need to be. Just as Abram was showing concern for his relationship with Lot, trying to keep those that relationship mended and healthy, and, and we need to do the same thing. Now, you can't always be successful in that. You're only one side of any relationship. But as much as it depends on you, strive to be at peace with other people. If you've got people in your life that, have, that you know are offended by you, that you know have a problem with you, go and try to mend that relationship. Reach out to those people and try to fix that. Well, one of the ways that we see Abram's concern in this relationship is through his generosity. You know, in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, it says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
as Christians. We should be generous. We should be caring for other people and concerned for our relationships to the point to where we're willing to sacrifice. Well, what do we see in Abram's life that has made him so generous? He's gone down into Egypt, and even in his lapse of faith, he comes back out of there with more wealth. Is it the wealth that made him generous? No. If you look around at human experience down through the ages, you'll find that more wealth will actually often have the opposite effect. Because in accumulating wealth, you get focused on accumulating wealth, and it becomes harder for you to let go of those things. The Bible warns us of that trap uh, through Old and New Testament. So it's not the accumulation of wealth that Abraham feels that he can be loose with his finances. It's his relationship with God. You see, he's not trusting in his wealth. He's trusting in God. And for good reason. God just delivered him up out of Egypt. God has blessed him while he's in Egypt. There's good reason for him to trust in God. You know what? We have good reason to trust in God. And we're to be content with what we have. And we're not to let the love of money creep into our lives. Why? Because he has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our trust for God should help us to hold on to our possessions loosely. We ought to be able to sacrifice. We ought to be able to give freely. Because, you know what, there's more where that comes from. It's just the blessings of God in my life. It's not this money. It's not this economy that's taking care of me. It's God that's taking care of me. And so we can hold on to it loosely. And you know what, there's a tremendous freedom in that. Because money, as is often said, makes a great servant, but a horrible master. You know what, James chapter 2, in verses 14 through 17, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? So notice in this passage, which we've looked at over the last couple of weeks a little bit, that the focus is faith. Some people were saying, you have faith, I have works. Like there's a huge division between the two things. Can you have faith and not have it change your life? And he says, absolutely not. Faith changes your life. Faith works in our life. If you're trusting in Christ, you are going to do works that are pleasing to Him. You're, you're going to do the same kind of things that He did. You're going to be following Him in those directions. And so that's the question that He's saying is, how do we see faith in your life? Notice the first example that He gives to make His point. In verse 15 He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's talking about faith. And where do we see your faith? And the very illustration that he uses to prove that faith without works is dead is generosity. He says if you see a brother or sister in Christ destitute, if you see a brother or sister in Christ in need, and let's just put this in our modern day. Let's just say it how we would say it. huh? And you say to them, man, I wish the best for you. I'll be praying for you. Goodbye. And we don't do anything to help alleviate that need. We don't reach out in any way to try to help that individual. He's saying, where's the faith in that? I find it interesting that in talking about faith, the very thing that he uses as an illustration is the principle of generosity. You see, generosity is an important part of a Christian's Mm -hmm. life, an important part of our walk with God. 
In Proverbs chapter 11, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. In Psalm 37 verse 21, it says, The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. So it compares the wickedness of a person in getting what they can get for themselves and not even paying back what they rightly owe back to individuals. But the righteous person stands out in that he's generous and he gives to other people. Proverbs 14.31, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. The way that we respond to the needy is a reflection of our relationship with God. And when we treat the person that way, it says we're actually treating God that way. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, you find a group of people mentioned in there that the Apostle Paul says, you know what, as I've been collecting an offering, he was collecting an offering for believers that were going through a lot of persecution. And because of that persecution, they were losing their jobs, they were losing their homes, they were losing their freedoms as they were being imprisoned, going through lots of struggles. And so Paul, as he traveled around, would collect offerings from other churches to help those people back in Jerusalem that were going through all those struggles. And along his way, he mentions this group of people that that he kind of wasn't even going to collect an offering from them, but they demanded that they be allowed to participate in this. And he said they were in poverty. They weren't giving out of their wealth. They were giving out of their poverty. And he makes a statement in there. He says they gave themselves first to the Lord and then also to you. You know, when we give to help other people, when we reach out in generosity, we are giving to God. It's part of our relationship with Him. The passage goes on in Second Corinthians into chapter 9 where it talks about giving almost as planting a field. And it says, kind of like it did in Proverbs, it says, whoever waters is himself watered. And that's what the Apostle Paul would say. Who It's like sowing seeds out in a field. And you sow abundantly, you reap abundantly. You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. Proverbs 19, verse 17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and He will repay him for his deed. The early church was described as being those that received their food with glad and generous hearts. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the the Apostle Paul would write and tell Timothy to warn the rich believers that they are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You know, it's pretty awesome, but just as all these passages point to, it's actually through giving that we receive. And even as Jesus taught, it's better to give than to receive. You know, it's so cool. But that's one of the paradoxes of the Christian life. And we find that God is so woven into our fabric that this is absolutely true, that it is actually even more healthy for us to give than to receive. In fact, I found it interesting as I was kind of perusing the Internet with this idea of generosity, I came across an article in Psychology Today. It caught my eye. And the reason it caught my eye is because of the title. The title was Generosity, What's in it for you? <laughs> and and I caught my my eye because it's 
Generosity is about not thinking about what's in it for you. Generosity is about doing for other people even if it costs you. Even if you have to sacrifice. And so generosity and what's in it to you are are opposing concepts. But the author, this Lisa Firestone, she is pointing out that there is so woven into our fabric this principle of generosity that it actually is healthy to give. She makes this statement. She said, like a healthy diet, exercise and good genes, generosity increases your lifespan. A 2003 research study at the University of Michigan reveals that the positive effects of generosity include improving one's mental and physical health and promoting longevity. In another Michigan study, which traced 2,700 people over 10 years, researchers found that men who did regular volunteer work had death rates two and one-half times lower than men who didn't. Generosity reduces stress, supports one's immune system, and enhances one's sense of purpose. Though it should not be your motivation, your motivation should always be in other people, but it is just good for us to be generous. Why? Because we're created by a generous God. And we're created to be concerned about relationships and caring about other people. And so generosity is a healthy part of our lifestyle. Well, the last thing I want to focus on here this morning as we look at this passage is a focus on the spiritual. Remember, we're looking at the results of God's grace in our life as He delivers us from our sinful lifestyles and our sinful habits. We're seeing that God brings us back to the basics of worship and of faith and and back to the basics of prayer and, and God's Word. He brings as a result of His grace into our life a concern for relationships. And now... I'll focus on the spiritual. Where I see this is actually in a contrast with Lot's life at the moment. As Lot, he gets the pick. And you know what? Abraham could have easily, it would have been easy for him to make excuses and not be generous. He could have easily said, you know what? God gave all this to me. He didn't give it to you. And God even reconfirms it afterwards. After Lot leaves and separates from him, what does God do? God comes back to Abraham and he says, you look to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. Notice that includes even the direction Lot went. And God says, I'm giving it all to you. It's all yours. So Abraham could have easily said to Lot, you know what, Lot? God gave this to me, not to you. If you've got a problem with the way the feeding thing is working out around here, maybe you ought to just leave. He could have justified himself that way. Not only that, but in the middle of stress. You know, in the middle of stress and in the middle of friction in relationships, it's easy to lash out. It's easy to fight back. But even in the stress, even in the friction, Abram doesn't fight back. He doesn't end up saying things he doesn't want, didn't mean to say or shouldn't have said. He's concerned for the relationship and he's generous. What do we see in Lot? Lot looks at the most fertile of the ground and he doesn't hesitate to take it. He's kind of looking out for himself. Even though he knows it's all given to Abraham, he's glad to take the best. Lack of humility, at least. But what else do we see in Lot? It says he's going to end up sitting in his tent as far as Sodom. Foolish decision. The Bible says that the men of Sodom were known to be great sinners, incredibly wicked people. But Lot, his concern is more for the grass than it is for the values of the area that he's going to live in. He's thinking about what's going to feed his sheep. Well, what's going to feed you? Now, I don't want to make Lot to be out some horrible sinner. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that the, the deeds and the things that he saw and the things that he heard as he lived near and in Sodom, 
but those vexed his righteous soul. He was disturbed by the wicked things that are going on around him, just like we're disturbed when we see wickedness in our own society. But he's making his decision based mainly on physical things. Now, do you have to take those things into account? Yes. Sometimes if a job closes down, we have to move. We've got to take financial things into account when we make some decisions, but they shouldn't be the only thing that we take into account. Now it says he goes as far as Sodom in setting up his tent and living. He's going to be one of kind of the city fathers at the foot of the gate a few chapters down the road. The decision didn't really pay off for him either. By the time we get to the end of chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be burnt up with brimstone as God brings judgment on those places. And Lot and his wife and his daughters will be rescued out of the city. Lot was making his decision just based on the physical We need to be careful that we don't do the same. Your life doesn't consist of your possessions and your wealth and your income level. So when God is delivering us, when we see the grace of God working in our life, we see that we're going to be brought back to the basics. We're going to be strong in the fundamentals of our faith. We're going to be walking in close connection with God through prayer, through the Word of God. We're going to be a part of of the fellowship of God's people. We're going to have a concern for relationship. We're going to hold on to our wealth loosely and and be a benefit and a blessing and willing to sacrifice for other people. And we're going to be focused not just on the physical elements of life, but on the spiritual as we walk in God's grace.